Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. We are joined this week by not one, but two fabulous guest experts, uh, Sawyer Kemp and Emily Lathrop. Lathrop. Nope. Lathrop. Lathrop. Again. <laughs> Lathrop. I knew it. It came out of my mouth and I was like, that's wrong. She can do Lathrop. it. Lathrop. Lathrop. We're joined this week by not just one, but two fabulous guest experts, Sawyer Kemp. Huh. Huh. <laughs> okay. Sawyer Kemp and Emily Lathrop. Lathrop. Lathrop, fuck me. Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts. Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are finally getting to our number one most requested play, Francis Beaumont's The Night of the Burning Pestle. About time. They all right? said, all I guess, five of them I, yeah. vehemently requested this play. I mean, but like <laughs> legit, since season one, we, we no, had true. people telling us to do it's this. It's true. We're joined this week by not just one, but two fabulous guest experts, uh, Sawyer Kemp and Emily Lathrop, who are going to talk about what they love about this wacky, wacky play, because I don't get this play. I don't get it. I don't really like it. So I'm hoping that you'll change my mind. Anyway, hi, friends. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourselves to our fabulous listeners? Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having us. My name's Emily. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I have a PhD in English from George Washington University. Finally finished that in May. Yay. Feels really good. Woo! Plague doctor! <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, exactly. Plague doctor. And uh, I currently work as the audience engagement and fellowship manager at Woolly Mammoth Theater Company here in D.C. And my research focuses on the intersections of audience engagement, Shakespeare performance, arts admin, and the myth of universality. Ooh. Nice little jumble. Sawyer. Love that. Hello. Uh, I'm Sawyer Kemp. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, I also have a PhD in English. Mine is from UC Davis. Um, I am currently a postdoc in transgender studies with the Department of Gender and Women's Studies at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Uh, my research is on audience studies also specifically around feelings and accessibility and the things that theaters do to Shakespeare or to their audience in order to make one cohere with the other. Um, and sometimes I write about gender just because I feel like I can't help not writing about gender. <laughs> <laughs> is this your third time with us on the pod? Yeah, I'm a long-term friend of the pod. Yeah. I think it's my third one. I think it's both of our readings, and now you're you're a guest. Joined the illustrious ranks of frequent flyers on podcast. I've crossed over from Mm -hmm. a, a, what do you call it, like a play-reading good time boy into the realm (laughs) of of expert, Um, Mm -hmm. which is funny because I actually don't have anything. I was saying, can I, I'm going to... I'm just taking up a lot of space. Um, I, <laughs> I was saying before we started that I 
this play launched my dissertation um, because I read it for I read it for a class that Gina Bloom taught on performance studies in early modern drama, which makes a lot of sense once you take a look at this play. Um, and it got me thinking about this idea of like how the audience is or is not supported um, by the like play mechanism. Um, and so it launched this whole dissertation about accessibility, but because I ended up focusing on Shakespeare in my dissertation and my advisor was like, you have to kind of carve out what your archive is. Everything that I wrote about about Night of the Burning Pestle got chucked. Um, so none of that is in anything that I work on. But I um, I really credit this play with making me think about, um, I, I sometimes call it a cautionary tale about what happens when the audience get what, gets what they want. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I love this play so much. And it was also all over my comp. So I'm super excited to have this conversation. Yay. Well, we're excited we're to have you. Yeah. For sure. I mean, we've legitimately been getting emails and tweets and more emails and more tweets for five Sky years. pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of carrier pigeons. They make such a fucking mess, guys. Stop sending us carrier pigeons, please. Please. Um, <laughs> but people have been requesting this for five years, and Aubrey and I are very, very lukewarm about it. Um, yeah. So, so funny to me. Yeah. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> when we read this play in my class, like the whole, we, we read it in class and then a number of us broke off to like read it again in a little reading group with some friends. Yeah. And part of it was just because of how much we loved the character Rafe, who's just a little guy who was not to love. That's true. I, I mean, I did name one of my cats after him. So, I mean, so, I'm not as lukewarm as Jess is about this play, especially not after I saw it, but mm. yeah, I do love a dunderheaded Rafe. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think I need to see it. I think I think that's the missing piece of the puzzle for me. Yeah, because I like I I so I like cognitively understand that this is a batshit funny play, but on the page it doesn't speak to me. So mm -hmm. yeah, anyway. that's fair. Right. So uh, <laughs> every week on this podcast, we discuss a different play. Sometimes it's Shakespeare, sometimes it's not. Uh, this week it's a one-on-one -on -one level episode, which is Aubrey that's introductory stuff everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes also like okay Sawyer and Emily can tell us what the themes are in this play um, and, some, and some other cool stuff that you'll get nowhere else like our opinions and this week Sawyer's and Emily's opinions so that'll be fun yeah but first it's happy hour yeah that is stuff we like and sometimes it's fluffy goodness and sometimes it's like really meaningful goodness mm -hmm. um this week i'm going pure puppy goodness if you yes. have not watched the series doug days on disney plus yet like get your life together it is just a short it's like six or eight episodes or something that are maybe eight minutes long and it's doug the dog from up going on adventures in his backyard and it is He's just a simple, simple boy. And it makes me really happy. Like these little episodes, I'm sitting there like crying tears of joy because this dog is so pure. Um, so if you need to pick me up, just, just go watch like eight minutes of Doug Days. It's very, very cute. He like battles a squirrel and then there's like s disgusting smells that he needs to investigate. Like he's just being a dog and it's great. That's what I got. That's I love so you. so sweet. <laughs> it's very sweet. So my rec uh, for this week is Bitch Magazine's new Access series. Mm. So following their 2018 uh, series about 
the impact of chronic illnesses on people from marginalized communities. Um, they are bringing that to sort of its logical next step by partnering with the Disability Visibility Project uh, and Alice Wong to create a digital series that's all about access. Um, and this is particularly is uh, relevant for people um, who are disabled or chronically ill and, you know, have to navigate this shit every fucking day of their lives. And the rest of us don't really think about it all that much, but maybe we fucking should, y'all. We'll uh, throw a link to that in our show notes and you can check it out, y'all. I love Bitch Magazine. Awesome. Yeah. What you got, Emily? A lot of people do. Um, I've got a collection of things that have emotionally devastated me in the past couple weeks. <laughs> yes. We love that. Love that. Um, happy hour or sorrow hour. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so one, uh, we were talking about it right before this, the red re-records from Taylor Swift. <gasps> so good. Um, I saw Spencer this last week, which was Ooh. psychological horror and not a period piece. Um, it's uh-huh. gorgeous and very stressful. So just like... Okay lots of warnings if you decide to go but it's beautiful Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then midnight mass on netflix it's a show that i watched like a month ago and has stayed with me and i'm I'm thinking about rewatching it because it's just such a good take on horror and religious horror and vampire Mm. like it's really beautiful and i was really surprised by it so those are my racks i keep like flirting with that one on the netflix account and like almost pressing play and then being like is it scary can i handle it I don't know. <laughs> I still fair. don't know. There are some jump scare things, but it's definitely more of the like creeping unease versus mm. people popping out of things. Okay. I like that. I, like that. I don't. <laughs> I want nothing to do with that. Uh, Sawyer, you got a wreck for us? I have two things. I decided to make one that was a little semi-serious and one that is self-indulgent. Um, so my first, I want to recommend if it's okay to recommend a podcast, um, that I don't think it will be competing. You have the attention span to listen to two podcasts, listeners. I believe in you. (laughs) Um, but I wanted, (laughs) I wanted to recommend the gender reveal podcast, um, which is hosted by Tuck Woodstock, who's just fantastic. Um, and they do amazing interviews with trans academics and artists and thinkers and, um, creators and lots of, um, Uh, just silly and interesting people and uh the podcast i think it both gives you a lot of background about what the kind of works are that these people are producing i actually assign for my students to choose either hill malatino's episode or the episode with um, francisco galarte because we read their pieces for our class and it was interesting to see how they talk about those kind of highbrow um theoretical arguments but in a uh straightforward and interpersonal way um and i think also the show does a great job of taking these really heady theory concepts Um, and unpacking them in very down-to-earth ways, while also being the funniest podcast about gender that I've ever heard, um, which is something I'm invested in. So I definitely recommend the Gender Reveal podcast. Um, The other thing that I've been spending a lot of my time on lately, because I am deep in sort of the malaise and fugue state of job application season, um, and so to give my weary bones a rest from that, I've been playing Final Fantasy XIV, which is an MORPG that 
has been out for ages. Um, but if you just really need to run around in sort of a fantasy ass world, um, this is the one. It's very fantasy. Um, I don't. I haven't played any of the other Final Fantasy games. I don't think think you really need to to play it. It does have a Star Trek reference. It does have emotes. Um, and also, I recently acquired a set of clothes um, that allow you to be naked, um, which is, as far as I can tell, the most important thing about video games. Clothes that allow you to be naked. They're like, well, uh, not to get too in the weeds, but there's I'm like confused. A, there's a glamour system where you can sort of have one set of like you can wear you can be wearing armor, but you can glamour it to look like this other set of clothes that is called the Emperor's New Armor or something like that. Oh. Um, and so you can appear to be naked. So it's been, I've been doing a lot of um, just trying to make my person look cool um but also i love the idea of like going into battle against an enormous monster wearing only boots um, <laughs> <laughs> and also my character is a is this is a summoner and so their weapon is a book and they're always like uh, he's always like wielding his book and like flipping the pages <laughs> listeners you can't see but i'm doing a lot of like maneuvers we have props um, he, he does a lot of thrusting and book book thrusting which is very oh. important um anyway i recommend that they don't really need me to recommend them because they're a huge corporate game but it's a good time hey if it's what's bringing you joy right now we love mm -hmm. the recommendations that's great mm -hmm. So cool. Thank you. That's a very rich and diverse happy hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> like we just went like all the way on the spectrum, like substance and, and almost none at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. How could you say that to me? I meant me actually like Douglas is the least substance. It's a dog. It's a literal dog. Not even a literal one. It's a fucking digital Pixar dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, okay, so our next segment is uh, we're going to refresh your memory. We we did a like a full on biography of Beaumont and Fletcher in our Maids tragedy episode, but we need to refresh the people's memory. Oh, it's like of a million years ago, so long ago. Um, <laughs> we need to refresh people's memory on who Francis Beaumont is. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is time for Meet the Contemporary. Francis Beaumont, this is your life. Um, so, uh, though Beaumont is famous because of his literary boyfriend, Fletcher, he wrote Pestle solo. He wrote None of the Burning Pestle solo. I don't know off the top of my head, and I did not research if Francis Beaumont wrote anything else by himself. He did. Uh, so, he pro I'm sure he did. Yeah. Um, so, Jess, you pull those good. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. Um, so, good old Frankie Bobo was born in 1584, and he died in 1616, just a month before Shakespeare. Uh, and after having survived a stroke in 1613, he started out life as a lawyer and was seduced to the dark side by the likes of professional asshole Ben Johnson. Can we, sorry, can we just like headcanon real quick that yeah. Beaumont and Shakespeare like had like a death pact? Sure. Mm, he was like, I don't want to live in a wor world yeah. that doesn't have you. Yeah. Yeah, for yes. sure. Great. Yeah. Headcanon accepted. I love it. Carry um, on. Great. So he began collaborating with John Fletcher as early as 1605. Um, quote, according to mid-century anecdote related by John Aubrey, they lived in the same house on the bank side in Southwark, sharing everything in the closest intimacy and having one wench in the house between them. 
Oh, mm-hmm. cute. Their domestic <laughs> bliss apparently ended when Beaumont got married in 1613. Sorry, wait. Fletcher. So, okay. So, wait. So, he he got married in 1613 and mm. had a stroke in 1613? Yeah. How early marriage modern. came first, but like... I'm thinking he know. faked his own death and the coffin was really... Right. And Fletcher killed him. No! <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, Yeah, that's the hottest take of the hour. Some (laughs) dosage of something. I don't know. They were drinking arsenic. Tincture. Yeah. Tincture. Tincture. Absolutely. More headcanon. Yeah, yeah, so Francis Beaumont. That is you in a nutshell. Um, kind of. Moving on. We, when we, before we embark on a summary of a play, we like to give you a five-word unhelpful title. Uh, so mine is, The Pestle is a Penis. I mean, I want to ask you one. to show your work, but I kind of feel like you don't have to show your work. Every production poster I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. I was like, every prop in this yeah. play. Yeah. <laughs> also, there's like a footnote like in this version pretty early on that's like, a pizzle is an animal penis. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh-huh. It's the pestle pizzle. Mm-hmm. I feel as though we've talked about the pestle pizzle. Probably. I think we've had that conversation. I remember saying pizzle a lot. We talk about dicks a lot. Time, so. We do. We it's do. early modern theater. I mean, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So my, uh, my title is The OG Choose Your Own Adventure. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um. My title, which is, I think, six words long, is A Play for Nerds and Dorks, subtitle of which I am both. <laughs> yes. <Fair. laughs> um, mine is When Audience Members Fight Back. Yeah. <laughs> all right. They're all really good titles. Varying degrees of helpfulness or unhelpfulness. <laughs> the Pestle is a Penis is almost too helpful. Uh, you're right. You're right. I it's failed like a, in, a in half of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so now it is time for the Dramatis Personae, but only the really important ones, which in this case kind of feels like all of them. There's that, yeah. No? There's a lot of boys running around that don't yeah. have Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, and they didn't make it into the summary. Um, okay, so we're, <laughs> we're going to start with a citizen grocer whose name is George. His wife, Nell. Rafe, Nell and George's apprentice. Luce who is VentureWell's daughter. Uh, There's Jasper, who is VentureWell's apprentice and Mary Thought's oldest son. And then we have Humphrey, who's Luce's wealthy suitor. VentureWell, a merchant and Luce's dad. And then we have old Mary Thought, an old man, Jasper's dad. And a club banger. Yeah. (laughs) Great lyricist. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> he sings got to read lot. the play to find that out <laughs> yeah also this feels very interrelated i didn't even notice that until we kind of laid this out but like all these people seem to be related mm-hmm. yes yeah <laughs> all right well why emily and sawyer why should this play be more popular why should it be worth mm-hmm. why is it worthy of our attention and accolades go all right I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> That's like why we brought you here. So. Um, I feel like I constantly try to like get people to read this play or put it on somewhere. Because I do think, I, I know that a lot of theater companies think it's hard to put on, but I think it actually isn't as hard as they think. Um, because there are so many early modern references, but I think that's kind of like 
the gist of most plays and we we figure out how to do it regardless um but anyways this is one of my favorites while there are certainly a lot of parts of this play and um, Beaumont's doing something specific around like anxieties about the audience dramatizing those anxieties and like mocking them walking the line of, of mocking them quite a bit I do think in performance and depending on how you approach the play the play can kind of become about an audience that's like invited to demand to see themselves reflected on stage in a really powerful way mm. um and to like have a say in what narratives get told and we see this with George and Nell and Rafe and yes they're mocked throughout the play but like they do win and they do get to see their story play out um and I think it's who the audience is with the whole time I don't think they're with uh, the players most of the time and I know Audrey you saw this play in Baltimore as well but I when did. I saw it in Baltimore it really prompted me to think about how this show relates to conversations the theater industry is having currently about representation and what mm. the audience is and and how much theater makers should listen to what the audience is kind of telling them they need and what they perceive as missing on stage and so I think this play is super modern actually I love that yeah I agree with a lot of what Emily said, and I think the, your your points about the play modeling a certain kind of audience participation is definitely my like primary point of attraction to the play and part of what makes it so fun. Um, I also think that the play gets a lot of attention as a kind of useful historical document. It tells us in the negative space around the bad behavior of Nell and George a lot about the conventions of early modern private theater and playgoing. Um, there is a lot of attention and dialogue about the boy actors, which Nell uh, thinks are just so cute and she can't stop talking about them. And she can't stop reminding us that they are little boys dressed up as these hilarious parts, um, which is easy. I forget that because I I don't know something about when I read plays for boy actors I have to I have to read them kind of two or three times through and the first time is to understand what the plot is and the second time through is for me to be like oh right these are actual children and there's nothing funnier in the world than a little kid wearing a mustache like there's just nothing funnier than that um, and and so there's this attention to the boy actors um, you know you have Nell and George sort of like climbing out of the cheap seats onto the the stools on stage which is also something that I, I think when I explained to my classes, you know, like, oh, there were certain seats that you could get on stage. And I think in this play and in The Roaring Girl, there's a, a lot of attention to like the kind of posturing and class elements of getting to be on stage where people could see you, um, which Nell and George as citizens are not supposed to be in those spots. Um, there's a moment where they go off to get beer and he brings the beer up to the other gentleman on the stage, reminding us that this is like kind of an active, um, uh, festive atmosphere where you could go get like snacks and stuff. Like there's a, con their concessions are part of this play, right? Um, and so I think, and so on top of that, we have also all of this stuff about the competing theaters of the kind of like private versus public theater. And there's references in the play to other types of, you know, there's a reference to like the May Day festivals and other types of like festivity. Um, so I think as a document, I'm not a historical person, like I'm very much a what can this play tell us about the present person, but I have to admit that I think part of what's enduring about this play is the way that it shows us something about the early modern theater. And I think that's kind of a juicy problem in performance because to me, when I think about like, how would I stage this play? Cause I actually haven't seen it live, but I would love to work on and produce this play. Um, it like, the audience 
should identify with Nell and George, but Nell and George are so early modern, like they, and you really do need to preserve how early modern they are. And so I love the problem of them being like, I'm just like you and I'm in pumpkin pants, right? Like, <laughs> I love that. Okay. Actually, yeah, I hadn't I thought about any of those things, which I'm so glad you're here to make me think about them. But yeah, it does sound more, it, it needs to be done more. Definitely needs to for be done sure, it needs to be done more. Someone should like, hire me sure. and Emily to produce this play. Honestly, a direct. I would love to. Um, I'm still like very annoyed that the Sam Wanamaker. It was in the opening season at the Globe for their Sam Wanamaker with Duchess of Malfi, mm. and they filmed Duchess of Malfi, and they didn't release a film of this. And I was like, I'm so angry with you. I would love to see Why? that. Rude. I don't know. Scarcity breeds value. <laughs> It's true. So. Sorry, was that too mean? Sorry, the, <laughs> sorry, the globe. Well, you know, they were one of our sponsors, but now you've tanked that. So, Wait, yeah, like Sawyer. the globe is ever going to sponsor us. Ever. <laughs> know, like right? the globe's ever going to know who we are. I was going to make a joke about their sponsors, but I won't. <laughs> la, 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 la. I'll make it. Could you get BP to sponsor this I podcast? Was like, speaking of tanks. <laughs> spicy podcast today (laughs) we're always spicy we're always spicy well perhaps we should summarize the play for our listeners so that's what we're going to do uh we're going to summarize the night of the burning pestle for you in a segment that this week we are calling Bespoke artisanal theater just for you on demand. <laughs> I love theater bespoke so theater. <laughs> right? <laughs> bespoke theater. Can you imagine? Very like just boho chic aesthetic. I love That's it. That's totally yeah. under somewhere. I mean, is uh, this not basically what the improvised Shakespeare like company <laughs> yeah, is? Yeah. That's yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. Act one. Uh, At the theater, a citizen and his wife object to the satirical subject matter of the play, The London Merchant. They insist on a more romantic offering starring their apprentice Rafe as a heroic grocer. The boy actors do their best to provide this within the play they have rehearsed. So in the play, The London Merchant, which is on stage in The Night of the Burning Pestle, which is like, we're we're so many meta layers deep now. the Luce, Luce is her name. She is in love with her father's apprentice, Jasper, uh, but her father wants her to marry Humphrey. Um, so Luce's father, Venturewell, fires Jasper and he goes home to his impoverished family. His father, old Mary thought, is irresponsible and always merrymaking, and that is why they are impoverished. His mother favors his younger brother, Michael, and insists that Michael immediately be paid his inheritance so he can go out into the world on his own. In Act 2, several characters end up in Waltham Forest, and no good things happen in Forest. Let me just (laughs) prelude that right now. Luce elopes with Humphrey, but is secretly intending to meet Jasper in the forest. Rafe the Grocer becomes the Knight of the Burning Pestle and sets off in search of heroic deeds. He scares Mistress Mary Thought, who runs away without her jewels. Jasper finds them and takes them away, runs into Humphrey and Luce, beats Humphrey, and absconds with Luce. In the audience, the citizen and his wife make Jasper for the villain and Humphrey for the hero, and they demand that Rafe return to fight Jasper. And Jasper beats Rafe. Venturewell confronts Jasper's father, but old Barry thought doesn't take it seriously, and Venturewell is offended. 
in act three, in a mistake as old as time, Jasper decides to devise a love test for Luce and threatens to beat her. So classic. (laughs) Really classic (laughs) for this, for this time. She accepts it. Um, wild. Uh, but Humphrey and Venturewell intercede and seize her away before Jasper can reveal it was all a pretext. Rafe posts up at an inn and doesn't understand that he has to pay for things. The citizen pays the bill for him. Uh, the innkeeper sends Rafe to fight a giant who's imprisoned a bunch of knights and ladies, but the giant is actually Nick the Barber mm. and his patients um, for venereal disease. Rafe defeats the giant and releases the knights. Yay, Rafe! Act four, the citizen and his wife have a scene inserted where Rafe meets a foreign princess but refuses her love. It is as racist as you think it would be. Uh, Venturewell locks loose in her room, but Jasper gets in by pretending to be dead and having his corpse delivered to her room so she can mourn him also a tale as old as time. Yeah. <laughs> the coffin is then sent to old Mary Thought, but Luce has swapped places with Jasper and escapes. Zany coffin mix-up. Yeah. Um, so finally in Act 5, uh, Jasper pretends to be his own ghost, and he tells Venturewell to repent and to compensate Old Mary Thought for his death and to throw Humphrey out of the house. When Venturewell arrives at the Mary Thought home, Old Mary Thought reveals that the kids are still alive. Surprise! <gasps> Yay! Uh, Venturewell accepts their love and lets them get married. The citizen and his wife complain about this ending, so then Rafe is given a death scene as the night of the burning pestle, and then there's a song, and then the play ends. How could you not like this play? It has a ghost, it has a giant who's really a barber, it has a lot of references to syphilis, it has a one of those arrow through the head headbands, like a mm-hmm. kind of classic Steve Martin gag. Yep. Mm-hmm. In the in the Baltimore production we saw, the lance was a huge giant golden dildo, which yep. was super obviously, fun. Obviously, penises all over the shield. Yep, just dicks Deep everywhere comedy. the whole time. Just big old I boner. Mean, isn't <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> Yep. Jess is so grudging about you. You I don't want to no. do this play. I, I, I do want to do this play because I want to be convinced. Okay. I just don't get it. You're the yes. Dana Scully of this scenario. And I feel like Aubrey <laughs> is the Fox Mulder. And we are the aliens. I'm and 100% we are the David aliens. Duchovny. Please and thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pretend I understood all of what you just said, Aww. but I definitely didn't. X-Files. X-Files. Oh, too spoopy for me. Okay. Yeah. Mulder's the believer. Scully is the skeptic. You're Jillian Oh, Anderson. does that mean? Oh, yeah. I'm okay with that. That makes yes. you Jillian Anderson, babe. Should we, should we read a little bit of this? We should. So uh, we're going to do a feature called A Taste of Text, in which we read a small but crucial portion of the play to give you a little bit of its flavor. We're going to just start up, start with the opening, right? Um, yeah. So who wants to be whom? We have a prologue, I- we have a citizen, we have a wife, and we have Rafe. Can I be the oh. wife? Great. I would love to be either the citizen or Rafe. I love to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, how about you take Citizen? And Emily, what about you? I'll be the prologue. Right on, right on. Okay, so I will read Young Rafe. So, whenever you're ready, take it away. From all that's near the court, from all that's great, within the compass of the city walls, we now have brought our scene. Hold your peace, Goodman boy. What do you mean, sir? 
that you have no good meaning. This seven years there hath been plays at this house. I have observed it. You have still girds at citizens, and now you call your play the London Merchant. Ugh, down with your title, boy. Down with your title. Are you a member of the noble city? I am. And a freeman? Yea, and a grocer. So, grocer, then by your sweet favor, we intend no abuse to the city. No, sir. Yes, sir. If you were not resolved to play the jacks, what need you study for new subjects? Purposely to abuse yours better, your betters. Sorry. Purposely to abuse your betters? Why could not you be contented, as well as others, with the legend of Whittington, or the life and death of Sir Thomas Gresham, with the building of the Royal Exchange, or the story of Queen Eleanor, with the rearing of London Bridge upon Woolsacks? You seem to be an understanding man. What would you have us do, sir? Why, present something notably in honor of the commons of the city. Why do you say, why what do you say to the life and death of Fat Drake, or the repairing of Fleet Privies? Mm, I do not like that, but I will have a citizen, and he shall be of my own trade. Oh, you should have told us your mind a month since our play's ready to begin now. Tis all one for that. I will have a grocer, and he shall do admirable things. What will you have him do? Mary, I will have him... Husband! Husband! Peace, mistress! Hold thy peace, Rafe. I know what I do. I warrant tea. Husband! Husband! What sayest thou, Cunny? <laughs> Let him kill a lion with his pestle, husband. Let him kill a lion with his pestle! So he shall. I'll have him kill a lion with a pestle. Husband, shall I come up, husband? Aye, honey. Rafe, help your mistress this way. Pray, gentlemen, make her a little room. I pray you, sir, lend me your hand to help up my wife. I thank you, sir. So. By your leave, gentlemen all, I'm something troublesome. I'm a stranger here. I was ne'er at one of these plays, as they say, before. But I should have seen Jane Shore once, and my husband hath promised me any time this twelve month to carry me to the bold Beecham's. But in truth he did not. I pray you, bear with me. Boy, let my wife and I have a couple stools, and then begin, and let the grocer do rare things. But, sir, we have never a boy to play him. Everyone hath the part already. Husband, husband, for God's sake, let Rafe play him. Beshrew me if I do not think he will go beyond them all. Oh, Well-remembered wife, come up, Rafe. I'll tell you, gentlemen, let them but lend him a suit of repairal and necessaries, and by God, if any of them all blow wind in the tail on him, I'll be hanged. I pray you, youth, let him have a suit of repairal. I'll be sworn, gentlemen, my husband tells you true. He will act you sometimes at our house that all the neighbors cry out on him. He will fetch you up a couraging part so in the garret that we are all as feared. I warrant you that we quake again. We'll fear our children with him. If they never be so unruly, do but cry, Rafe comes, Rafe comes to them, and they'll be as quiet as lambs. Hold up thy head, Rafe. Show the gentleman what thou canst do. Speak a huffing part. I warrant you the gentleman will accept of it. Do, Rafe, do. By heaven, methinks it were an easy leap to pluck bright honor from the pale-faced moon or dive into the bottom of the sea where never fathom line touched any ground and pluck up drowned honor from the lake of hell. 
How say you, gentlemen? Is it not as I told you? Nay, gentlemen. He hath played before, my husband says, Musidorus before the wardens of our company. Aye, and he should have played Geronimo with a shoemaker for a wager. He shall have a suit of apparel if he will go in. In, Rafe, in, Rafe, and set out the grocery in their kind if thou lovest me. I warrant our Rafe will look finely when he's dressed. But what will you have it called? The grocer's honor. Methinks the night of the burning pestle were better. I'll be sworn, husband, that's as good as a name as can be. Let it be so. Begin, begin, my wife and I will sit down. I pray you do. Oh, what stately music have you? You have shams? Shams? No. No? <laughs> I'm a thief if my mind did not give me so. Rafe plays a stately part, and he must needs have shams. I'll be at the charge of them myself, rather than will be without them. So you are like to be. Why, and so I will be. There's two shillings. Let's have the weights of Southwark. Southwark? Southwark? I don't know how to say that. Southwark. They are as rare fellows as any are in England, and that will fetch them all over the water with a vengeance as if they were mad. You shall have them. Will you sit down then? Aye, come wife. Sit you marry all, gentlemen. I'm bold to sit amongst you for my ease. From all that's near the court, from all that's great, within the compass of the city walls, we now have brought our scene. Fly far from hence, all private taxes, and modest phrases, whate'er may but show like vicious. For wicked mirth never true pleasure brings, but honest minds are pleased with honest things. Thus much for what we do, but for Rafe's part, you must answer for yourself. Take you no care for Rafe. He'll discharge himself, I warrant you. The faith, gentlemen, I'll give my word for Rafe. And a scene. Huzzah. So a perfectly respectable prologue gets interrupted by this grocer family. Yes. <laughs> and the, the madness begins. <laughs> the big anxiety. What if my audience talks back? Yeah. <laughs> Straight up intervenes, just takes over and makes a new play. Your play sucks. <laughs> oh, man. We hate what you've done here. We hate it already. We already Rewrite hate it. it. Rewrite it on the fly right now. We know you're only a paragraph in, but already trash. Right. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So let's talk, you know, tips and tidbits. Um, I, I feel like... I don't have anything to say. I would much rather hear our two experts tell us like production and scholarly stuff about about this play. So yeah. take it I away. Mean, well, just what gets your motor running? Yeah. Funny, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's no secret. I study audience stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for this, this play actually reminds me a bit of Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, my favorite bits of Midsummer are with the mechanicals and I love one of the final sure. scenes where they're performing and we get these moments of the audience actively telling them they're bad right and voicing that anxiety mm-hmm. um there's something with early modern drama where we get plays within the play where we get all of this audience response being staged and like normally it's for dramatic means but then we get these kind of anxious moments um where the actors have to act on their feet and figure out how to how to deal with it. So that's why I'm really drawn to this play. Because normally it's contained to certain scenes, right? In Midsummer, we'd get that one scene. In Hamlet, we get the one scene. But with this, it's the actual structure of the play that the audience is going to be talking the entire time. 
And then there's the added anxiety of like, if an audience sees George, Nell, and Rafe doing this, might they follow suit? Like what, like what kind of invitation is that for the actual audience watching an audience interrupt a show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's a, I think this play really stages how exaggerated and maybe concern trolling the complaints about audience wants and needs are like I kind of see this play on both sides of the spectrum of like it is a cautionary tale about what happens when your audience gets what they want um and it also you know we have a lot of these scenes where the um actors set up a certain amount of tension including Rafe once he's kind of brought into the scenes and gets suckered into his own um motifs that he's going through and then Nell and George the citizen or the wife and the citizen um are really unable to to uh weather any amount of dramatic tension um and so every time something happens um they immediately get angry with with anyone who who tries to do anything that breaks the law or anyone who tries to get one over on their uh, mastery we see this with um jasper and and venture well where you know from the perspective of the grocer um jasper is not a uh a sort of protagonist of the play he's he's a a naughty apprentice who's not doing his work right right um and so they're constantly i mean on one hand they're constantly kind of threatening to call the cops um there's a number there's two i think specific moments in the play where they specifically are like go get the cops and we we are going to like get this man arrested for his crimes um and so and also moments where you know rafe um who is having his uh, sort of Don Quixote moment of of uh, believing he's in this high romantic world that's set within this uh, still fictional but more realist world of the London city, mm-hmm. like has to pay the bill for the inn that he stayed at, um, and in even if they were to allow him to participate in. The- play it would be a play about oh he doesn't have any money and now he has to figure out how to solve this problem uh but the citizen jumps up and pays the bill for him so there's this constant interruption of the narrative to absolve any um kind of rhythm from emerging and so Rafe is constantly having to make it more and more dramatic right he has to then go out and fight a giant and then that gets set up that gets finished and so he has to start a militia that is waging a war against who what unclear capitalism Um, (laughs) (laughs) and and so there's that like there's this idea that like they shouldn't be intervening in the play because it's ruining the dramatic tension and I think from a perspective of um from from my kind of perspective of audience studies and access I I think and write about about trigger warnings and content warnings a lot and I think um particularly in British theater although still in American theater there's a lot of anxiety about like well won't that ruin the surprise and won't there be you know no more dramatic tension and what do you go to the play for if it's not to see people in these situations of struggle um and I think that this this play kind of shows how ridiculous those concerns are because we don't have anyone doing this amount of like de um deflating of dramatic tension right this is not a real problem that we have and and to my mind when i'm kind of thinking about and writing about maybe countering those arguments i'm thinking like most of the time people just want a little heads up so they know what they're getting into and know how to prepare themselves and they're not trying to censure the play and they're not trying to like alter it um in this manner um so that's one element just mm-hmm. building on emily i also 
I'll, I can take a pause, but my other thought about like what's kind of going on here is that there's um, a highbrow versus lowbrow kind of um, battle of the arts happening. And it's funny to look at it from a contemporary perspective because they both seem equally um, removed and arch to us. I think sometimes when you teach students this you have to be like well the romantic stuff that Rafe is doing was not seen as as um highbrow as the kind of London city stuff because to them it's all of a piece um and to them it's just old old-timey language um, and you kind of have to tease out for them this you're like well this one is kind of a Marvel movie and this one is kind of a like um I don't know it uh, city drama do we still have city dramas this one's like uh, i don't yeah. i don't really watch tv or movies i don't see anything except the real housewives um so <laughs> insert a, a drama here pretty little liars sure. big little liars i don't know what that show is big which one is which it's two big different lies. shows <laughs> the one that's a highbrow i don't watch anything highbrow. big little lies um <laughs> oh my gosh sawyer i have so many thoughts <laughs> um yeah, so going back to what you were talking about in terms of like warnings and, and cutting of the dramatic moments, my one of my favorite parts of this play, my favorite scene actually, I think, is when Nell, the wife, um, interrupts when Jasper is doing the thing in early modern drama where men decide to test how much their their lovers love them mm -hmm. by pretending to kill them or think, making her think that he's going to kill her. And in this scene, while he's doing this, Nell actually jumps up on stage and stops him and calls him an asshole and is like, <laughs> I'm not going to let you harm her. And for me, it brings up a lot of questions about tr how trauma gets activated in audiences and yeah. like, what audience response is. There have been so many moments and, you know, you're watching something and you're like, I can't believe this is going to happen to her. I, I don't want this to happen to her. These writers are awful. Um, and it, there have been so many discussions online over the past couple of years, particularly in fandoms, mm -hmm. um, about wanting to save characters from their writers and the, the violence mm -hmm. they put on them. I'm thinking specifically of Sansa Stark, where it's like oh my gosh, clear yes. that they're not writing for the character and they're just writing to like further a man's um, mm -hmm. dialogue or like violence for violence sake. Um, yeah. And I think that's in line with how Nell is acting in that scene in that moment. It's like a real serious moment, I think, in this like huge arc of comedy that's happening. Like normally when they're interrupting, it's it's quite it can be annoying. It's usually comedic. And yes, there's an an a bit of comedy in the fact that she's like stopping a she, she thinks someone's actually gonna get hurt, but it's right. I do kind of love that moment where she's like, no. I don't want to watch you murder this woman and like it's not gonna actually be helpful to the storyline like i'm gonna stop it and like please stop putting this in your plays this is such a trope um that when it when i saw it in baltimore i was like oh i really like this actually i think it's really it's easy to forget or maybe impossible to forget i think depending on your particular subject or uh, position um orienting to early modern theater about like the absolute constant threat of rape and assault and domestic yeah. violence um which i i don't know whether to attribute only to dramatic um convention or to like the actual um patriarchal suppression of women in this time period right so maybe it's a little of column a and a little of column b um 
but it, it is almost refreshing to see a character intervene. And that's why I don't think that you, I think as a contemporary audience, we may even be more sympathetic to Nell and George. Um, but I think that probably it, I, I, the, the editor of this edition and some other, um, some other editions that I've seen, and obviously as we talked about the, um, not the prologue, but the kind of printer's note that's at the head of it says that this play was not well received at the time. And I think it might be because it's like a little ambivalent, like who's getting sent up in this play. And it does seem a little bit like the theater and the like people who enjoy the theater are also getting um, kind of the piss taken out of them, the pizzle taken out of them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely empathize with Nell. I definitely like the idea of someone being like, oh, no, there's not going to be one of another one of these sort of casualties of patriarchal violence in this play. Thank you. Not for me. I'm a grocer's wife. I sort of love that about George and Nell, that they, they're not the, the kind of hecklers that can't suspend their disbelief. They, mm -hmm. they actually suspend their disbelief like way too much, it seems. Mm -hmm. Like they, they are so invested and think everything is real or, you know, and behave accordingly. And I sort of love that. Like I love being in a show and watching somebody or even myself like being 100% drawn in. Maybe not drawn in to the point of actual intervention, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> well, and that's... In sorry, terms of like the, oh, sorry. In terms of like the history of, I know we're not talking about Shakespeare, but there are also lots of instances over the last couple, you know, centuries of audience members actually interrupting shows and often mm -hmm. it's to inflict violence upon someone on stage. And so I do think that's also part of a conversation in, in terms of like how audiences react to, to things on stage of it actually can go very wrong and like how yeah. is this play framing it? So Emily, you've seen this in we saw the same production. Yes. Um, Sawyer, have you ever had a chance to see a production of Pestle? No, I would love to see a production though. Yeah, I keep thinking of like the buck basket or like difficult to stage type of moments. Mm -hmm. um, and I and it seems to me like the whole play is like yeah. a buck basket <laughs> problem, right? Because you've got the it is thing. it's like playception, right? And you have to make it very clear what is real and like mm -hmm. what is the frame, and then what is the play within the play, and then what is the section of like Rafe's play within the play within the play right and what is the like weird oblique reference to another contemporary play that they're kind of sending up whenever they let Rafe do anything like which right, is clearly right. sometimes Shakespeare but also <laughs> a bunch of other like there he has like fully got the Falstaff assembling his militia scene just <laughs> yeah. there and it is pretty much the same scene because that's already a comedy scene like um and he There's opens a, with I think some lines from Hotspur yeah. Um, a, <laughs> yeah, we have a Henry. Yeah. yeah, it does seem like, I don't know, I think, again, this is why, like, the historical elements seem really juicy, because it also seems clear to me that they're just literally going into their props closet and being like, what do we, what do we got back here? What can we reuse? How Does about this puzzle? Set? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is something about, like, the, the historical setup of this stage that's really interesting here. I... And I'm always, when we saw this Baltimore production, because I'm thinking about the tiring house and like who enters and exits from it. And George and Nell usually start in the audience. So they're already kind of there. Sometimes they might be in period costume, but sometimes they're dressed like normal audience members to have that mm -hmm. kind of effect. And they have to climb over everyone in the pews or the seats and like actually disrupt people's experience. Mm -hmm. um, but like at intermission, do they exit with the audience? Like where 
in the world of the play are they entering and exiting from and then at the end are they exiting with curtain call are they exiting through the entrance the audience going is going through and then going backstage there's something about like the meta theatrical structure of like mm-hmm. where are they during I the would love to know what they did in the stage version that you saw because when I was reading this again um I was thinking about how they have scenes for George and Nell in every interval mm-hmm. um and so really it seems like textually since also George and Nell don't change costumes it reads like they're in the audience the whole time and they're on the whole time, which also means the audience has no break. Like this is actually a really interesting play for audience studies because specifically they are constantly, they are constantly being asked to engage with these actors and they can go to the bathroom and they can go get like M&Ms or whatever, but they're going to miss something about the play probably. Um, And I have to assume that those, if you are doing this play, those actors have kind of some freedom to ad lib um but i it it seems to me like it is in taking up this question of like what should an audience have to endure when they agree to be an audience goer or like it's an endurance test this Mm -hmm. this play and it's it's light kind of because it's a comedy and there's a lot of silliness and we're not really concerned about anyone's safety in this play but it is like the the fake audience members make it so that the real audience members have have a more grueling theater experience Mm -hmm. I I think that's fascinating I agree they they stayed on the whole time to my recollection Mm -hmm. I think Um, so because intermission what happened was people who were like playing the people in the merchant uh play Mm -hmm. um did go backstage they came out a couple times but what they did is because they had updated the songs uh, mm. for Mary Thought, they kept the same rhythm, they kept the same like number of words, but had updated it with recognizable songs for the audience. Mm-hmm. Huh. They came out and sang during intermission. It was Rafe, George, and Nell, and some of the band members were just singing it with the audience and like asking the audience to sing along with them, like as they like went to the bathroom or went and got concessions mm-hmm. or things. Huh. So George Nell and Rafe did not get any break they were there as the audience came in and then until the audience left the space did not shut off in the um interludes that they write for us which again is part of why i say this play is like such a like early modern performance event in taste and amber like (laughs) they have scenes where you know the boy will the boys come out to jig and do like a little a little step dance um and then she asks for other she asks for other things right she says um this one's in interlude three but um now a capers now now a turn of the toe and then a tumble can you not tumble and he's like no i can't and she says can you eat fire and he says no lady i can't i i'm just like no And then she says, and then she pays him anyway, which is so sweet. It's like, you know, I think on one hand, they're definitely overstepping the value of their ticket. They haven't paid, they haven't paid for the bespoke experience that they are asking for, but they are like polite and tipping everyone. That's true. Lovable. Just being cognizant of the time, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't have any gossip to offer. (laughs) So I have a little bit of of some gossip. Oh, yeah. Um, starting to think about a book which like is a wild we'll see I don't know I have like no 
capacity right now. I'm like, maybe in May. I will, yeah. <laughs> like, I can't do it right now. But yeah. um, aside from writing and academic stuff, we are opening a pre-Broadway musical at Woolly in like two weeks. We're doing right a Strange on. Loop, which is just like, woohoo! So exciting. If you haven't listened to A Strange Loop, it's on Spotify. It won the Pulitzer like a year and a half ago. It will make you cry. Oh, so it good. It made me cry so much. So, so it's a musical, I take yeah. it? Okay. Yes. So That's it exciting. is a musical, um, kind of about theater, actually. Like it fits huh. in a little bit with Night of the Burning Pestle. It's about uh, Usher, who is an usher at The Lion King. So he's an usher who's working in theater, writing a musical about a playwright who's working in musical theater, who's writing about being a playwright. And so there's like this loop of meta theatrical. Yeah. Um, and it's so beautiful. I cannot wait. Um, I'm really excited. And then we're also touring Madeline Sayet, who um, a lots of Shakespeare people will probably know, has this beautiful one woman show called Where We Belong um, about her experience uh, being a Mohegan playwright and how it connects to Shakespeare and, and language reclamation, which Wooly actually worked on with the Folger. And that's touring around the country. So check out the dates. Um, it is well worth your time. And then Sawyer and I are maybe, not maybe, we're definitely doing a um, panel at SAA in the spring towards a critical audience studies. So if you enjoyed hearing us ramble and rant about audiences and theaters in this podcast, uh, check it out at (laughs) SAA. (laughs) Yay. Jacksonville 2022, baby. Uh What about you, Sawyer? Sawyer? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any real... I don't have any gossip. I have a plug. Is that allowed? Of yes. course. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, your your yes. information is is gossip too. Gossip. So please tell us what you're working on and yeah. I have a piece coming out in it's one of those sort of the queer temporalities of academic publishing means that this is either forthcoming in the next coming months or maybe it already is published in some (laughs) other kind of timeline Um, but I I have contributed an essay to um, Shakespeare Bulletin is doing a special issue on Shakespeare and social justice Um, And so I have a piece coming out called Two Othello's Transitioning Anti-Blackness, a dialogue with Skylar Cooper, um, who it is is kind of a wacky piece for me. Um, I, I was trying something out methodologically because I talked to Skylar Cooper, who is a transgender actor who played Othello before and after he transitioned. Is that with Livermore Shakes? He was the second one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, was it Livermore? Okay, great. I know Um, who you're talking about. Yeah. He's so fantastic. Also yeah. just in general, a very um, like generous with his time, really just, a, a, he like did this interview with me. We talked for like three and a half hours. And then he also zoomed into the class I was teaching last spring to talk to them about mm-hmm. um, about Shakespeare and, and acting. Um, but so the, the piece is about his experience um, in those two productions, one of which um, that was kind of styled as a lesbian production, Um, where Othello was a butch woman, and then uh, the second one at Livermore Shakes was done kind of set in the Civil War, Um, and so uh, Othello was a cisgender man, Um, and I kind of argue that in between these two productions of like Othello as a woman and Othello as a man is this third kind of ghost production of Othello as a transmasculine man, Mm -hmm. and talking about um, anti-Blackness and uh, how that intersects with transgender identity. And uh, I excerpted kind of large portions of our interview because I was trying to preserve Skylar's voice 
Um, but uh, yeah, check that out. It should be out. Who knows? <laughs> um, I'll keep an eye out. That sounds fascinating. Um, before we transition out of this, do either of you have social media presences that you want to shout out or a website or anything of your, a digital presence of your own where we can direct people in our show notes? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram, but my Instagram is mostly like aesthetic art pictures in my story. Like it's not academic, um, but it's and ER. confirm she's a good follow. Thanks. <laughs> it's ER Lathrop. So my first and middle initial and just my last name. My Twitter was never supposed to be a professional presence, but it's an open secret that my uh, Twitter account is at Hamlet Hologram. You are welcome to request to follow me there. I will accept maybe unless I'm in some kind of weird mood. I mostly tweet about the Real Housewives and trans uh, issues that are happening. I sometimes tweet about Shakespeare and audiences, but that's where I am. All right. Well, thank you folks for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Thank you so much to Sawyer and Emily for joining us. It has been a pleasure and I wish we could just keep going for another hour, but we can't. We have to let Emily go. So we got places to be. (laughs) Emily has deadlines. It's fine. Emily has a social life. Like how dare, frankly. I'm a Gemini, you guys. Thank you so much for having us and for having me on for the third time. Yes, we got to get you a blazer. We got to get you an official. I want a leather jacket that says like Hurley Burley. Uh, Ah, yes. We We all have merch. No, God, I wish. No, we're Uh, no, no. We have some free magnets that we occasionally have have at conferences. I gotta find them. I have a box of Uh, magnets floating around here somewhere. I think they're. I know you have a box. I, I also have another box. Or maybe, no, did you take the like box? Three boxes. Maybe. Well, wow. I feel like I we have that them. merch. That's what we've got. Yeah, I, love I don't know where it's they ended up in the move, though. Anyway. <laughs> this was so uh, great. <laughs> I had a good first time. Thanks so much yeah. for Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, tune in next time, y'all. We are back, I think, right after Thanksgiving, question yep. mark, yep. for... Midsummer 301. Uh, it's going to be another episode with not one but two, two. special guests. Uh, Wham it out. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla h-o-l-l-a at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com you can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on instagram or at hurlyburlyshake no s on twitter the land on which i live and work colonially known as stanton virginia is the unceded territory of the monacan confederation of nations and i pay my respects to their elders past and present the traditional custodians of the land on which i live are the lenape nation and i pay my respects to their elders past and present learn about where you live at native-land.ca Get involved at ndncollective.org and find out more about the Landback campaign at landback.org. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Yeah. She's also very Catholic, so this goes well for your affiliation. Okay. You can cut that. It <laughs> doesn't um, make sense without the porn. <laughs> Does anything? I mean, mean, think about it.
That's know. literally the tagline of the episode. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make sense without the porn. 